everyone, it's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Welcome to KindreCast. I'm Alex Michael, the co-head of Lion Tree Growth here at Lion Tree. Today on KindreCast, we have a terrific guest. His name is Scott Belsky. Scott is an executive entrepreneur, author, and investor who currently serves as Adobe's chief product officer and EVP of their creative cloud. Adobe, of course, the huge software company out of San Jose, California. Very, very interesting role. Scott is the co-founder of Behance, which is a social media platform that serves to showcase and discover creative work. He founded that in 2006 and then sold it to Adobe in 2012. So he has the entrepreneur chops there. Alongside his role at Adobe today, Scott is an active investor and advisor in businesses that cross the intersection of tech and design. Some of his notable investments and advisory work include such little companies as Pinterest, Uber, Sweetgreen, Carta, Cheddar, Flexport, Airtable, OpenSea, Ramp, Row, goes on and on. Scott is also the author of a couple best-selling books, Making Ideas Happen and The Messy Middle. We'll talk about The Messy Middle in particular, about his journey as an entrepreneur. And we're just so excited to have you here. Scott, welcome to KindreCast. It's good to be here. So much to talk about. Right. It's a wild, wild world these days. It's a it? wild world. We're in web three, four, I don't know, but we'll get into that. <laughs> You're in the middle of all of this. What's so amazing to have you here, besides your general thoughtfulness and experience, is that you straddle so many things. We've talked about all the companies you've invested in, but then, of course, there's your perch at Adobe, yep. which, as we mentioned at the top, is a massive company. Headquartered in San Jose. Mm-hmm. You live here in New York. Mm-hmm. So you have that added wrinkle that you see across the entire country in many ways. <laughs> I don't know if you stop in Chicago <laughs> or the Midwest on your travels, but that's led to some very unique insights. And I want to touch on that to start because you've come up with a top 10 list, right, to kick off the year. I guess you do this every year. Yeah, it's my annual challenge to think about what's really uh, relevant in the near future in terms of change, you know, what kinds of things we need to be thinking about. So it's uh, always a struggle to like get them out there and then start hearing what people have to think. So happy to jump in. So these are your prognostications about the future of life and work. Over the next five years, you keep it to a five-year? Exactly. Yeah, there are things that, that come up you know, over the course of usually the year leading up to sharing them. And I'm always thinking about you know, what are we underestimating in terms of changes of behavior, in terms of how we live, go to school, work, et cetera. It's my tactic to get a lot of feedback and connect a lot of dots around me in terms of people that might join us you know, at Adobe, people that are founders starting companies that I think are really relevant. So that's the exercise. Got it. Okay. So... It's a great way to start the show. It's a great way to start the year. I mean, talking earlier, you said there's been some good feedback to you on these. Let me run through some quickly. I'll try to make it fast. And then let's double click on some. Sounds good. All right. So here we go. Again, I feel like David Letterman. These are the top (laughs) Top 10 things. (laughs) How life and work will change in a material way over the next five years. Okay. So number one, recommendations kill favorites. AI-driven recommendations transcend our historical go-tos. Some interesting things there. That one really hit for me. Yeah. Number two, the next generation of top talent will have polygamous careers. Mm -hmm. 
Number three, the rise of immersive experiences will mainstream 3D creation. Yep. I feel that's really close to your Adobe and Behance roots, I'm guessing. Yep. Four, we're going to talk about this one a lot, the stakeholder economy. Mm-hmm. That stakeholder economy will reinvigorate emerging brands and local businesses and be the most disruptive force against internet behemoths and global marketplaces. Actually, let's dive in there and I'll come back because I feel like that's a really poignant one right now. Sure. Tell me about that. The stakeholder economy. What is that? Yeah. Well, in macro, it's this desire for participants and communities and marketplaces to act as stewards and owners as opposed to passive participants at the mercy of changing take rates and policies and censorship in some cases. So obviously, this incorporates a lot of the elements of what we're calling Web3, which is essentially whether it's decentralized autonomous organizations or blockchain-driven marketplaces. But a lot of people talk about it from the standpoint of big marketplaces like talent marketplaces. If you are uh, hiring someone on a talent marketplace, say in Upwork or wherever else, and the marketplace is taking a big take rate, in what situation might people be able to showcase their portfolios, be available for hire, and be hired by a demand side without a take rate being taken? There's a, a couple examples of this. There's a network called Brain Trust, which disclaimer, I am an investor in. It's a decentralized marketplace for talent. But the difference is that every participant on the demand and supply side own the tokens. And so as there's commerce in the platform, there's no take rate by the platform itself, but the value of the tokens goes up. And in fact, when you are an owner of the platform, you don't feel like it's taking advantage of you. In fact, you feel like you're constantly wanting to merchandise it. And so what Brain Trust has realized is that if you're a designer in there, you get your other friends to join because you want to increase the value of the marketplace. And I think that's a fascinating element that people become active marketers of something that they are an owner of as opposed to a passive participant in. And this is a linchpin or at least one of the key themes of Web3, right? Correct. In the idea that it won't be Meta or Google or whomever who is organizing this whole business universe and collecting all the rewards of that, that all the participants... All the participants. So here's the outlook, though, or the more contrarian element of this is that not only does this apply to big marketplaces like we just discussed, but could it apply to small businesses? So imagine the small businesses in our towns that are increasingly struggling, the ice cream shop, the bakery, the coffee shop. These are all essentially supported by the local community. And yet, The money to start them and to pay the rent and everything all has to be sourced by the person who's starting it. And there's very little connection with the community that so desires to have these establishments thrive in their own community. And so why can't we use some of those same mechanics for Web3 that we're discussing to actually decentralize, to some extent, some of these local businesses? So imagine if I'm opening a coffee shop, I have a token sale all of the people that are patrons of mine or people that want to be in the community buy these tokens and they hold them. And there's some liquidity in them. If people move out of the community, they can sell them to people who move in the community. You can use the tokens to, of course, buy coffee, but you can also hold the tokens, hoping that the value holds or goes up of this coffee shop as it thrives. But what's interesting is that suddenly everyone in the community wants everyone who's their friend to use that coffee shop. And everyone, again, becomes an owner and a steward as opposed to just a passive participant. So I just wonder if these are LLCs today, might they become decentralized autonomous organizations tomorrow and be able to get some of the benefits actually being a quote-unquote public company, but on a micro, small town scale? 
Now, of course, there are legal issues. There's all sorts of right, regulatory right, questions right. that someone would throw at my face right now. But hey, we're talking about predictions These are here. Predictions. <laughs> Do you think this also translates to like music artists? People basically as fans are yeah. doing that work without any incentive beyond just saying, I found something cool. You know, any business that has a very high cost of customer acquisition and marketing specifically would benefit from having every patron operate as an owner because then viral coefficients of marketing go off the roof. It's a truly community-driven model that uh, I think is fascinating. Now, artists, any sort of cultural icon that has a community would want their community to act as owners and potentially have some input into the art itself. And that's another fascinating trend, is right? Is that a good thing, though? Does the artist want that feedback? So long as it's in the artist's control, is my view, right, you know, or right. at least in the artist's influence. In some cases, artists, whether they like it or not, not, have always been serving their community to some right, degree, right, right? right? It makes me think, again, I, I bring it sometimes to pop culture and sports and music, but the Green Bay Packers are community-owned, essentially. They're sort of an example. Of Great example. And exactly. There are other examples that there are always exceptions to the rule, and yet they thrive as a result of being so. Sure. And so, I, you know, technology in some cases, by the way, the little litmus test I always use for these is that I fundamentally believe that we all long for the way life used to be. We all long for the moment back in the day, maybe 100 years ago, where we all knew the shopkeepers, we knew the coffee shop owner, we all felt an ownership and a stake in our own community. So any technology that in some ways returns us a little bit closer to that, to me, will be successful. Okay. All right. That's the stakeholder economy. That was number four. Businesses of all sizes will benefit from this decentralized token movement. Number five, we will all start to opt in for ads, read personalized experiences, come back. Number six, F the man, power to the people as a service. Why don't you tell us about that one? Well, I think the idea here is that we have this desire, of course, to not feel taken advantage of and not have to endure the frictions that are placed on us by governments, by companies, by processes and whatever. And we've always sort of been on our own to solve some of those things. I do see a rise of companies that are devoted to helping us collectively overcome these frictions and sort of fight back to some extent. I mentioned another company in the portfolio, Do Not Pay. As an example of this, it's literally a subscription service that does all this stuff for you. So if you want to basically start a class action thing, you can do it through the app. You can fight a parking ticket. You can fight spam and email spam and call spam and whatever, but doing so in a way that would never have been scalable for you to do on your own. It's a fascinating sort of moment where there is this, everyone wants to, feels like they deserve to be able to fight back and not being taken advantage of. And there are a certain set of products and services rising to the occasion to help us. Got it. Okay. And I think it's important. You mentioned brain trust. These are all investable themes, really. I, I mean, think they're so. at the yeah. heart of it. And many of them, you know, there may not be companies out there yet, but I'm hoping there will be. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, but we love it. I mean, yeah. especially, you know, at LionTree too, we want to look around the corner and exactly. this is what you're trying to do and then invest early against that. Okay, so that was number six was F the man, power to the people as a service. Number seven, every function of the enterprise will become a multiplayer and fully immersive experience. So that's getting into AR, VR, just all over. Yeah, I think it's the two levels. The more immediate level is this idea that every function in the enterprise, whether it be procurement or financial planning or whatever, that used to be a siloed discipline with their own special suite of tools. And I had to export it as a PowerPoint slide in order to, for you to even understand what I'm talking about. 
that becoming a multiplayer experience where I can invite you in and there's an interface made for you as the viewer, as the stakeholder, and then we can have a collaborative experience. So I think that's happening. It's certainly happening in design. And we have now Photoshop on the web and we have other things that are other products that are web-based and more collaborative to bring everyone into the same page, so to speak. But it's happening across every function. So step one is that will happen across even the most myopic, hard to access functions of the enterprise. And that's giving rise to a whole suite of new SaaS companies. But then I think the next generation of that is actually an immersive multiplayer experience. This so, is the meta prospect, you know. Where, I think so. Yeah, okay. You know, I think so. And, and to bring it home, imagine if you're a DevOps engineer. Your job is to make sure that the servers are up and running, to understand what processes are falling behind, where there are vulnerabilities, repeated actions to handle things, cron jobs, stuff like that that you're doing throughout your day. Imagine being able to pop into a VR experience where you see your servers and the color of them shows you how hot they are metaphorically and physically, potentially. Yeah. And it shows you everything that's going on. You can start to react in a more like skeuomorphic fashion. You kind of see the world around you that you're working within. You see your colleagues around you. You see the things that they've done manifested physically in this immersive environment. So it's a much more intuitive, bring us back to the way things once were, like walking around the warehouse, seeing what's wrong. But then imagine there's like a line that divides your company from the commons area where you can go in and get shared code. You can see other DevOps engineers from other companies, and you can even access shared services like AWS and stuff like that. Imagine what the DevOps environment would be in a fully immersive world. There's some startups out there tackling that kind of thing. Sure. You know, and, and how could that apply to financial planning? Can you see your balance sheet and P&L in a more physical, immersive way? I think it's a fascinating you take idea. me down to my expenditure at that coffee shop yeah. that I own a token it, to. And, you know, you yeah. go into each door as an expense line and you yeah. can like get your hands dirty, so to speak, right. and like, you know, what's going on with this expense line. Um, it may sound crazy, but it actually is more natural to our own human tendencies, the way we work and think and realize yeah. and have ideas. And you said fully immersive. So to be clear, you see this as a VR environment, not an AR environment. Actually, eventually I see it as an AR Virtual reality, augmented yeah, yeah. reality, yeah. I, I think VR is a step stone towards AR, you know, I actually feel like we'll all end up in AR. My personal view is that AR will be more natural for us. I think VR will happen more quickly. We'll double click on that for one second, which is VR, Meta slash Facebook. Yep. Are they going to be the platform? Are they going to be the winner in this? What's your take on that? I think there will definitely be at least three major players. I think that they will certainly be one of them. Who are the other two? Of course, that's going to be the question. Yeah. Rumors are that Apple's exploring this space. You know, rumors are that Google's exploring this space. You know, I uh, have to be careful about what I know through my day job and not. But uh, exactly. But I I think that it's safe to say that there are lots of companies exploring this space. And what I also know deep in my gut is that these new immersive experiences will fall completely flat unless they are rich with interactive, creative, amazing, personalized, animated experiences. And that's what gets me personally excited with my Adobe hat on because it's like, okay, we need the world's creatives to engage in this medium and start to create for it. But it also opens up a whole new world of ad technology for personalized experiences, new types of animation tools. I mean, it's a whole Pandora's box of opportunity. Number eight, which allow me to go back to number two, which is about polygamous careers, right? Number eight is next generation will have a nomadic decade of life and work and will love it. Pandemic helped usher this in, I imagine, where we could do a lot of jobs, not all jobs. We're not saving lives here on some of the things we're doing. But 
you could do it from lots of places. And then again, in number two, you said the next generation of top talent will have polygamous careers. I assume those are sort of merging together, but talk about that. Yeah, well, maybe we just talk about like the psychographic or the next generation mindset as they come out of their college years, whether they go to college or not, and they have that decade, call it between 20 and age 30. You used to just find a house or a flat somewhere and rent it with a few friends for a year at a time, and that was how leases were structured, and then you worked locally in whatever job you happened to get. But now we have a world in which I believe, first of all, companies will be more tolerant of engaging talent that has other jobs. If you want to have the best UX designer in the world on something, well, guess what? That person probably doesn't have a full-time job. That person's pulled in as a SWAT team for really cool things at some of the best companies in the world. Infographics designers, certain types of developers. These are folks that become independent because they can become independent. And so uh, they want to be engaged in that way. And I think that's going to become a more widespread thing. What might this look like? Well, imagine we graduate or enter our 20s and we decide to get a Airbnb subscription, if that existed, where we can actually pick any place around the world for the cost equivalent of rent, but we can weeks out of a time spend a time in Granada, Spain, and then a little time in Paris and a little time in Costa Rica and whatever else. And wherever you go, you have your Wi-Fi connection. You're immersing yourself in creative communities that are diverse and different. And you're meeting new people and you may have many different jobs along the way because of course, a lot of them, if not all of them will be tolerant of remote work. So I imagine this person will have more of what I'd call a polygamous career, where they'll have two or three companies that they're associated with. Maybe they're being paid in dollars. Maybe they're being paid in tokens for their contributions to some of these decentralized projects. And they're being um, measured based on a more objective set of criteria, the whole rise of OKRs and measuring someone's contribution with more objective criteria, as opposed to FaceTime and what your manager happens to think of your latest presentation. I think it's really exciting when we can really measure the input that people have the impact that people have. We can allow them to make impact instead of time, you know, with actual like contributions, and then they can have multiple jobs. And I also think that our natural human desire, going back to the way things once were, is to be multifaceted. To well, let me push things. you on that because yeah. you do talk about, and I agree, generally go to our base instinct. This is also like Scott Galloway thing of our core desires and the way things were. But there was a time, obviously, at the turn of the century and for many years where you stayed at IBM or these companies for many, many years and you got the gold watch. And it's only in the last, I don't know, I'm guessing 20, 30 years where the idea of even jumping around yeah. more than every <laughs> few years was, you know, really staying on your resume. Yep, agree. But you think that early epoch of being in that company for that long is not the human instinct. The pillar I would stand on with this is the realization that Labor is becoming increasingly automated and commoditized. AI and robots are doing a lot of the things we used to do for productivity. I like to say that creativity is the new productivity. You used to stand out at work because you got more spreadsheets done, but now you have algorithms helping you do that. So you're going to stand out less because of how productive you are on the job and more because of how creative you are on the job. Well, what do we know about creativity and artists. We know that they are stimulated by difference. They're stimulated by clashes of surprises and mistakes of the eye and whatever the case may be. An artist and a creative, as they become too specialized, they become irrelevant. They have to become stimulated by multiple things all the time, is my view. If we believe that creativity is new productivity, if we believe that people will increasingly stand out at work and in life and on social media and in school based on their creativity as opposed to their productivity, then we can argue that for people to be successful in their career, they have to be multifaceted. They can't just do one job and do the career track at IBM for 30 years. 
Also, this group of people we're talking about, remember, they grew up in a world where they were getting buzzes and bings all the time. They're on Facebook while they're playing a video game, while they're talking to their friend, while they're on FaceTime. Our brains are now being developed to live that way, to then unplug from that extremely diverse and multifaceted, stimulating world and be told, welcome, this is your job for the next 30 years. Here's your career track. Don't get distracted. And this is where you're going to live in one, but you're saying jobs and locations will be impetus for that creativity and that ideation. A hundred percent. Okay. Related to this, are you then short, i.e. feeling there is going to be a demise in big cities? That's a good question. I'm not as negative about big cities because I think that it's back to the stimulation and the diversity of people and ideas and interests around you. A big city is a way of stacking that deck in your favor. But I also think that they might be different cities. You're seeing the rise of new cities and, you know, that the infrastructure can kind of be reimagined. The social networks can be reimagined. Okay, so you're long New York or not? Of course I am. I'm here. <laughs> All right. By the way, the, you're talking about 2030. People also need to date. They need to meet that, people that's true. career. And the, the, there are, I am long yeah. the big cities, but... I, I would be short yeah. New York for the age of 20 to 30. You know, I think that people are going to start to realize, wait a second. You would be short there. Yeah, during that decade. Because I do believe that that will be increasingly this nomadic decade. I do believe that people will be global for a period of time before, to your point, they settle down, have a family, need to pick a place, in which case... I would say cities have something to offer. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. We'll keep going here. Number nine, the reverse franchise model and edge employment <laughs> will fuel growth and resilience of small businesses. Edge employment. Edge employment. Let's yeah. talk about what that means. Did you invent that word? Is yeah, that I did. Word? Well, okay. you know, I was trying to explain what I meant by finding people and then helping them learn a skill and then helping them deploy themselves to merchandise that skill professionally based on the demand for something. For example, if we're in suburban Chicago area and we realize that Whirlpool dishwashers don't have enough people to service them, what if we could actually market to people to learn how to fix that appliance and then once they pass the quiz, deploy them to a platform that allows them to get gigs repairing Whirlpool dishwashers. In some ways, that's edupoyment. You're educating them and employing them in a same vertically integrated fashion. There are companies in various spaces emerging to help people do that. And I think it's smart because you have Google search trend criteria based on region. You know what skills are missing where. A lot of the companies that need to have practitioners for specific things would welcome this as well. So that's that concept. KindredCast brought to you by Whirlpool today. Thank you. (laughs) Hashtag. Is that a commentary that could lead us against higher education potentially? Am I drawing that too far? It's a good good question. Because the trade school was a big thing. It is a big thing, but it's not something we readily think about as a replacement for higher education, at least in this country. Do you think that will help the evolution and maybe some of the pushback against maybe you don't. If you want to service cars, you could go to trade school for that. Any thoughts there? Yeah, well, I think it will all become more vertically integrated. There will be less risk and expense on the student to go to a trade school or an analytics program hoping that they someday can turn this into a job. Instead, you can ask, why wouldn't Google have Analytics University where you get accepted and you get trained up and then deployed or on trade into a role at Google or somewhere else and have that all vertically integrated based on the needs of the company? The inefficiency of that stack is being ironed out. Yep. And, you know, the, the comment on the reverse franchise model really quickly is this insight that all these incredibly passionate small business owners that are doing things like appliance repair or painting or lawn care or pest control or whatever, 
they're all trying to operate locally without the benefits of tech, without the know-how of SEO, without ability to take payments with credit card, without all these scheduling and referral platforms and stuff like that. And so if companies can develop those basic picks and shovels tools and then go to these mom and pops and say, hey, do you want to join our network? That's what I would call a reverse franchise model. Got it. Okay. All right. Number 10, the era of multiple identities we discover, embrace, and express our multiple selves. So again, we had polygamous careers, we had multiple <laughs> identities. What does that mean? What's the impact? Yeah, future's kind of spicy, I guess. Yeah, you know, I guess so, uh, I guess. We'll start going back to the way things once were. And I think we all have always had different parts of ourselves, yet we feel the need to conform to something that society expects us to be. And that's one identity that has always taken over the rest. Now you're seeing a world in which it's more socially acceptable to get an avatar. There's this quiet consumer product that's thriving called It's Me. And it starts with people that are teenagers or in their 20s, most likely. They pick and create their avatar. And then they have live discussions with people. They just meet people. Um, as the avatar. As the avatar. With their own name, the desired skin color, desired number of piercings, desired wardrobe, whatever it is that they imagine this alternative identity to be. I mean, you look at the rise of these profile pics as an NFT, you know, that was the sort of first phase of NFTs. Board and Ape and... Board Ape or whatever. CryptoPunks, yeah. And some people are just replacing their profile pic with their real name, but they're Bored Ape. A lot of people are creating another Twitter account or another Facebook account, or I guess you can't do Facebook, but you know, another social media right. account on different platforms as this alternative identity. And they're realizing, oh my gosh, I can take more risks sharing what I really think. I can have different types of relationships with different people. I can have different types of conversations. I can be this person who's fascinated with art and is a geek on you know, all things NFTs or whatever here. And over here, I can be the executive at this lawn care company. And I don't have to mince and mash the two. But is that disassociation, yep. which it is, healthy ultimately? Didn't the internet unlock this <laughs> idea that you could be this anonymous commenter and the vitriol and some of the negative things we don't love to talk about came from this idea that I can be hidden behind a computer and do it? Is this the next phase of that? And is this healthy for some? You're looking at it as a positive and then we can be more expressive that yeah. way. But why can't we embrace for that expression as who we are just with different hats? It's a good question. We're getting into like the benefits cost analysis of yeah. this. It is us being our more authentic selves because this is a part of us that we've always suppressed. And now we've found a comfortable, safe outlet for it to really be creative and go for it. Now, that's a very optimistic view. To your point, I could also create an alias. I could go and start being mean and harassing people and whatever, and that is not good. And so it's up to the social platforms, which we've realized they have not risen to the occasion fully yet, being able to police some of that, although it's getting better. I do think that there will be some cultures emerging. It's interesting in this crypto space with people with all these different identities, there are some ethos of, you know, when someone starts to be nasty, everyone else gangs up on them. So I don't know, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm hopeful that the first phase always has a lot of negative use. And then somehow the community starts to correct for some of these things. And I'm, I'm hopeful the same thing happens. But is there a contradiction there too? And we talked about this earlier, that this multiple identity and being less authentic is at odds with really what's at the heart of crypto and blockchain, which is I know exactly yeah. where this comes from and the authenticity. How do you reconcile that? Right. It's wild that the most transparent and easy to authenticate mechanism of technology, the blockchain, where literally everyone has a record of every transaction ever, also is the platform for people to be anonymous. Well, they're not anonymous. It's actually all known. It's just 
they're picking their own pseudonym. That's a fascinating contradiction. That's what's actually fueling the whole space, right? right? Is the right. fact that you can buy something and be the legitimate owner of something while having actually no idea who actually made it. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So those are the top 10. Yep. Those are the prognostications. You're putting your, in some ways, your money where your mouth is in terms of investing in some of these trends. But I, I would say, you know, you've got a pretty good perch here to make these bets. It'll be very interesting. And where can they read this on their own, by the way? These know? are fun. Yeah, I posted this on Medium and then uh, it was covered by some other folks as well with their own commentary. The last one I would touch on super yeah, quickly was actually number one. Okay, just... yeah, yes, I love this one. Please do. This is the Rotten Tomatoes one, basically. <laughs> right. It yeah. was about, we've always... You know, but favorites. recommendations kill favorites. That's the type. That's, that's, AI-driven recommendations transcend our historical go-tos. Yeah. I mean, the, just real quickly, how this started was I just realized that I was starting to trust my Spotify enhanced playlists, like more so than my own records of my favorites right? and the liked songs and stuff, because I just realized, wow, I got constantly introduced to new stuff. And it started to bring me down this trail of thought that we've always been a prisoner of our favorites. The restaurants that you happen to circumstantially discover in your life, you just keep going back creatures to, of habit you're creatures of habit because you want to mitigate risk and life is short and time is precious and it becomes even more precious over time and so you just keep going back to the same restaurants the same vacation spots the same songs the same whatever what a shame and if we can suddenly get the, this moment of singularity like i got to in music in other areas where i actually would Love if I could take every person that has similar taste to me in any city that I'm in and see their top five restaurants and then have those five recommended to me, I would never go to like the one that I've always loved because I would start to like surrender myself to the power of recommendations. And so that concept just really excited me and I saw it happening in music and I started to think like, where is it going to happen next? And the habit is a safety to the point of human instinct. We're safe with that. It's not poison. It's going to be okay. Yep. We're not wasting The lizard time. brain, as Seth Godin likes to call it. Exactly. It always brings us back to what's familiar, the exactly. expense of what's new. And you believe that we will give ourselves to the technology to enable favorites to infiltrate that are AI-driven. Yeah, because I think that we'll start to be pleasantly surprised as a pattern. And then we'll be like, wait a second, this actually works. And you think it's pop culture or anything? Uh, well, restaurants you talked about, but shows. Yeah, I think I think preferences. Music, you know, there's so much data. Travel. Anything that we keep going back to because we discovered it and loved it. Well, there's more people that are like us that have discovered things that they've loved that we don't know. And our lives will be richer if we discover them. Yep. So Yelp and Google reviews and Rotten Tomatoes will feel like as old as they feel, even more right. old because... But it has to get to a point where we trust, yeah. where right. it actually is that good. Right, right, right. And in that, there's, it's like a singularity that is rare and maybe is only happening in music right now, in yeah. my view. I think it's super interesting. So let's talk about pop culture for a second because yeah. we talked about that as well. You made an interesting comment that culture is at odds with tech. Can you double click on that? Because you said it's a debate yeah, you're having. Sure. And you mentioned high heels. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll somehow find yeah, our way to, we'll high, get heels to high heels. Like many of our listeners, I've been watching the debates between some of the titans of Web2, the major centralized platforms and marketplaces Facebook, that Google, life, Box, Amazon, whatever they are, and the folks that are most excited about Web3, which are these decentralized reimaginations of all of these platforms. The, the leaders of the Web2 world have made a great point. They've said, wait a second. Consumers have always opted for speed, efficiency, user experience. People don't have the tolerance for crazy, cumbersome onboardings and really delayed transactions and stuff like that. 
And Web3, you know, blockchain is not efficient, really. It takes time. It has to be verified. You have to log in with these keys. Like, there's a lot of stuff that is just not consumer-friendly. So the debate between the two, I've been observing it, you know, and I've been thinking about the types of trades that we make as people and why we make them. In my world, it was really interesting five to 10 years ago, the idea of doing precision, performance-grade, professional-grade creativity on the web was crazy. You go to someone using Photoshop and they'd be like, are you kidding me? I would never surrender my work to the bandwidth of an internet connection. What people were missing back then was that there was a next generation of customers that rose up in the age of Google Docs that would happily trade collaboration for performance. And that was a trade they were willing to make. So when a new technology surprises us, it's usually a trade that we didn't anticipate people making. In this instance of Web3 versus Web2, I wonder if the trade that we're missing is for culture. This desire to not be owned by a company, but be owned by the people. A desire to be able to policy as a community as opposed to a centralized, tucked away company in Silicon Valley somewhere. The notion of feeling like an owner, owning tokens. Are any of those cultural sensations, while they have a compromise for customer experience, like it makes it clunky or whatever? Well, isn't Wikipedia that? In some ways, Wikipedia hasn't evolved much, but people love it based on it's just like reliable and there. What are the things we do more for culture that are not efficient, not speedy, and not even comfortable, which is where where high high heels came in. But, you know, I I think that's the question. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, it'll be a friction. There's a friction. There's an active debate and there will be some trades that people do and don't make when it comes down to... But you're a believer in Web3. This is the next internet. I think the drivers of Web3 are here to stay. I think that they will be used in the wrong places, probably more so than the right places to start. And then it will fetter out. And then we will have massive decentralized organizations that we rely on every day in our lives in the future. Is it fair? Late 90s internet is today's Web3, basically? That's where we are? I think it's a fair analogy. Yeah, right. There were a lot of internet companies that went away because it was kind of using the wrong hammer for the wrong nail, right? Right. But then massive winners, of course. Okay. Top 10, some other cultural thoughts. I want to talk about Messy Middle for a second. Sure. Because it really was, I know you're a guest, so I could say lots of things of how great you are and how great (laughs) the book is. In this case, I authentically love the book. I heard you speak about it at Betaworks at our friend John Borthworks' place. Yeah, yeah. I just was riveted by it. Maybe give two seconds, and then people should go buy this book, about The Messy Middle, which is about your entrepreneurial journey. And certainly for people who are listening who are founders and in this or starting this or whatever, it's just so instructive and enlightening. Give us a little bit of what that's about. Over a course of about seven years in board meetings or on 1 a.m. phone calls with founders struggling or going through some of my own pre and post acquisition ups and downs and then coming into a big company like Adobe and leading a bit of a transformation from software to service, etc. I would always jot down things I didn't want to forget things I observed, learned from others. Seven years later, I was looking at all this, realizing, gosh, like I should try to at least organize this for myself. And I realized that all these insights basically fell into three camps. There was how to endure those lows, to optimize everything that worked was the second one. And then the third was really around how to not screw things up in the final mile. You know, I recognize that this in essence defines how we navigate the middle of every journey. You know, you just got to Stick with it long enough to figure it out, endure those lows. You have to optimize everything that works about your team, your product, everything that's in market that's working, you have to do more of. 
and then try to avoid self-sabotage and other crazy things that crop up at the end, which yeah. you know also from the sure. world of growth companies and M&A, et cetera. The book encompasses over 100 different insights that really were significant to me. They didn't all come from me. They came from many people that I worked with that I think are critical for us to navigate our messy middles. Well, and one of those, which is the one I probably quote the most, and I don't know if you framed it this way, but the idea, if you're starting to think of the M&A journey, yep. I frame it as build a bridge, don't jump. Yeah. And when you're dealing especially with strategic buyers, corporate development people, mm -hmm. these people need to follow you as you grow your business. Yeah. And you need to find ways to tell them about your journey. And so when they get to that point, it's either organic or they know enough to That's right. be able to activate because they're as much about rejecting ideas sure. as they are embracing. Let me talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, like, it's funny because there's two things I always find myself going back to and advising founders about that M&A journey. Of course, every confident founder is saying, I don't want to ever sell my company and I don't want to look like I'm selling my company. I'm like, yes, correct. However, you want to build relationships. You never know how these are going to materialize. Trick number one is, you know, when you email all these different companies and say, I want to tell you about my company, they sort of sort it out. They filter it out. It's like, oh, I'm being promoted too. But if you forward an investor update that you sent to your investors with some minor deductions, you know, obviously hide anything that you don't comfortable sharing, and you forward and say, FYI, figured you might want to see our latest investor update, suddenly the company is like, oh, behind I get the to, curtain. Behind yeah. the curtain, look, right? So I advise entrepreneurs to take a version of their investor update that they feel comfortable sharing and then just start opening the kimono, so to speak, with some of these different partners of theirs, build trust and have them feel like they have the inside scoop on your company. I find that works really well for some companies. The second little more wild thing I like to advise because I've now lived both as a founder and a big company acquiring a lot of startups and companies is a wild analogy of what M&A is like in a big company, which is that I think it's sort of like feeding a domesticated lion. I don't know if that's really something. Whatever, but okay, domesticated lion, keep going. Uh, and uh, I don't you know, we're at lion tricks, yeah, so you might yeah. as well talk about it. Let's embrace um, the lion. But the idea here is as follows. My vision, I don't, I've never been a zookeeper, is that if you throw in a piece of meat to the domesticated lion, they're just going to ignore it. It's like right. whatever. But you know, you have to kind of rattle the bars and like get the lion going and engage because that's its like instinct. And then eventually the lion will just be like, okay, I'm going to just eat this meat this. and have my meal. And so in a big company, every M&A opportunity, you know, comes up as a meeting, and then the quarter gets ahead of you and then the cycles and, you know, it gets sort of gets forgotten or for an idea to really like shine through enough to just be pounced on, so to speak, and decisiveness happen at the moment. You kind of have to have that internal champion and you have to like stimulate that sort of decision. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. And it's a healthy thing, actually, because companies can really get distracted by M&A, right? Yep. So in some ways, you have to break through and it's an unnatural force to lead to that unnatural outcome. And one of the ways is that quarterly update or just touching base or I'm going to be in town or ways to 100%. give information yeah. without being... Building that relationship with Adobe, it was a four-year relationship, you know, before Behance was acquired by Adobe. And, you know, in some of the companies that we acquired, I mean, a big one in the 3D space is this company called Substance that was based in France. We knew them for years, amazing PhDs in the whole 3D and immersive world. And then we uh, made an investment. We had a board observer seat. And then a few years later, we ended up acquiring the company. What is your take on strategic corporates as investors in startups? There's different takes on whether you should take that type of capital. What's your take on that? 
Well, you know, I think that the old school version was we get all these rights and we have right of first refusals and we're going to sort of limit you. So it's money that comes with lots of strings. And I'm not a fan of that. You know, I don't think that that serves the company nor the entrepreneur nor the ethos. However, the modern version is we just want an excuse to get those updates and learn and get to know each other. And hey, listen, if all we do is give money, so be it. But we just want to be a part of your journey. And I think that's a very authentic and like no strings attached way that sometimes leads to the same outcome. And you don't think it potentially, especially if it's one investor, one corporate, that it taints the M&A picture at all from a standpoint of, oh, they're captive to them yeah. or they really have a deal. You would advise- It, it if, would have, yeah. right? And I think that would have. Although now, I mean, if you see Salesforce Ventures or Google Ventures or someone else on a cap table, you don't assume that they're out of the picture for anyone else to acquire them. Right, right. And so that, as, as more of that happens, I feel like people won't have that doubt. They'll be okay with yeah. it. So you're okay with it in I concept. Am. Yeah. And you, it seems like you would also, if you can do a commercial deal with these strategic companies as a founder, do it. Like, let them get to know you on a working basis? I think so. At the end of the day, and you know this better than I, like, all this stuff comes down to circumstantial relationships and moments and conversations. So how do you optimize for more of those? Right. Listen, it's like <laughs> dating and, you know, finding spouses. It, timing's half of it, right? Like, 100%. you find the right inspirational moment. All right. Scott, let's do some speed around here. All right. <laughs> like, let's get into your pop culture. So I'll ask you uh, a few questions here as we get to the end of this beautiful journey that we're having. What's a podcast you'd recommend or are listening to or both? Well, I'm going to cheat and actually say that I'm listening to a podcast that my wife is involved with. She's not on it, but she's the producer of a podcast called Good Inside. It's basically by a parenting expert named Becky Kennedy. And it's all about how to build resilient, self-confident or real confident children. Okay, It's called Good Inside. And every time I listen to it, I'm like, okay, I got to do that with my kids. Oh my, I got to stop doing that with my kids. <laughs> That's good. Good Inside. We could all use, uh, maybe there'll be AI parenting at some point, which would help. Uh, <laughs> all right, a shows. A show you're streaming, recommending, some Thing that's really grabbed you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. I am watching Yellowstone now with Kevin Costner. Like I'm early in the first season. Okay. So too early you to just tell. caught on. You yeah, yeah. The popular masses. Yeah. And I just finished Narcos, which I also, I mean, yeah. I'm fascinated by yeah. all these cartel business shows. It's like pretty wild. <laughs> another another world. <laughs> Maybe that's your different identity. Uh -oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's my third identity exactly. that I never discovered yet. Exactly. All right. So Yellowstone is a recommendation. Interesting. Okay. How about a book? There's some uh, oh, yes. a messy middle, of course. Go out and buy it or your favorite. Oh, it's funny. I, I actually am literally in the middle of reading a book called Dr. Assassin. Dr. Assassin. And it is a book, believe it or not, that my father published. It's a novel about an assassin who's also a doctor. My father is a retired doctor. I hope he wasn't an assassin. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm this maybe is a different idea. Maybe this is a biography this and I don't realize. Um, I read Sebastian Junger, you know, wrote a book called Tribe, which is really about communities over time and how and why people participate or don't participate in communities. I thought that was super fascinating as well. What do you read in the mornings? How do you get ready for the day? My superpower is Twitter, honestly. Like I, I have finally tuned a group of people that I have followed for years that are writers or that share things that I find super interesting. And, you know, it's almost like having a handpicked community of people curate the news and what's interesting to them for you. And I feel like Twitter is one of the most undervalued platforms in the world based on the value it provides for its users. Just, it's fascinating to me and that's a whole other podcast. But okay. anyways, I do turn to Twitter when I, when I get started. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Scott, we've done it all. We hit a lot. We did it all. Scott Belsky, executive entrepreneur, author, investor, 
Great person. Thank you for coming on Kindercast. Really appreciate it. We'll follow these trends, check them out online, check out the books, anything his family touches. <laughs> and uh, Scott, great to have you. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.